Well, good evening, everyone. We do greet you in the name of Jesus. Is it possible to live the Christian life without hope? Jerry is shaking. I agree. It is not possible to make it to heaven. It is not possible to make it through uh, the journey of the Christian life without hope. Thank you, Brother Tim, for those thoughts. They go well with what I want to speak about tonight. Have you ever heard this quote? I guess I can call it a quote. The only thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. How many of you have ever heard that? How many of you think that's a good quote? Okay, no hands. I agree with you. That's not even a biblical, that's not a biblical statement. Uh, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10, and I'll show you why that's not a good statement. The songs that were led this evening, love the Lord with all your heart, with all my heart, go well with what I want to speak about. Every one of us, if we are on, if we have reached the age of accountability and the understanding, we are on a journey. We're in a journey of life. And I take it by what I see here this evening that I'm speaking by and large to people that are on the journey to heaven. They have hope. They have that living hope that we're going to make it to heaven. But meanwhile, there are things to contend with. There's a journey here in life that we must face and that we must be faithful in if we're going to make it. The uh, Hebrew writer says that without faith... It is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that, tell me what the next word is, diligently, what, diligently seek him. What kind of definition do you have for the word diligently? Does it kind of mean, okay, kind of mediocre and ho-hum? No, we don't get that picture, do we? We get the picture of a person that is diligent. He means business, and he's going forward. And uh, I want to talk about that this evening. Tonight, there are three categories of people here. And I'd like for you to, to put yourself into a category. Honestly, look at your life. And you, you, don't, you don't have to tell me, but you look at your own life and you tell yourself, what kind of category am I in? I'll try and remember to tell you the categories after we read the scripture here. 1 Corinthians 10 and the statement that I made, that's not with me. I don't agree with the statement. The only thing we learn from history is that we are, don't learn from history. God says you need to learn from history. Um, we live in a society today that's all upside down. It makes me sad. And yet there's many things to be thankful for. I don't want to be a fatalistic person. A lot of things, a lot of positive things. But we must admit we live in a society that has turned things upside down, just the, the absence of common sense in society. And they would like to obliterate history. They're tearing down monuments that stand for history. Uh, they're saying that, some people are saying, there was never a Holocaust. Well, I wasn't here when that happened. Many of you weren't here when that happened. But I believe there was 
I wasn't here when Abraham Lincoln was president, even though some of you young people might think I'm old enough to be. No, I wasn't here. I didn't. Dwight Eisenhower was president when I was born. But history tells us. History gives us facts. And we believe it. We believe history. So we need to learn from history. Verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all of our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat. Now, the Apostle Paul is going back to their forefathers. They knew the story. These were Jewish people. They knew the story of their forefathers, how they had been delivered from Egypt, how they had gone through the wilderness experience, how they had gotten into the land of Canaan, the promised land. And he's reminding them that, of that. And he reminds them of the mistakes they made. Verse 4, And did all drink the same spiritual drink? For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Now, notice the warnings in here. These were given for our examples. Now, here we are. Now, we are here many, many generations later. He was speaking to them there. I'm speaking to you this evening. The Bible speaks to us in, in our age. He says, don't make the same mistakes that those forefathers did many years ago. These were things, now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters as some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed as serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happen unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. The Bible is telling us here, Scripture is telling us here, learn from history, learn from the mistakes of these people that were supposed to be God's people. They were called God's people. They were the Old Testament church. And this, of course, resulted uh, was a result of Abraham, who God spoke to and he said, Abraham, get out of the land where you're at and go. And the Bible says he went out not knowing where he was going. He was a great man of faith. And God blessed him because he was obedient, because he was a man of faith. And I admire Abraham. Uh, Hebrews 11, I think it says, for he looked for a city which hath foundation, whose builder and maker is God. We're looking for that city, aren't we? And yet, in the meanwhile, there are going to be giants and there are going to be temptations, there are going to be trials that we need to face, and we need to have hope, Brother Tim. We need to have hope. It helps us to move forward in there, in, in, that, in the journey of life. The three categories of people I would like to talk about tonight are those who are not saved, the next category I would like to talk about are those who have been delivered, those who have come out of bondage, and yet somehow they're floundering. 
They're not making progress. They're just kind of wandering along and they're kind of a mediocre Christian. They're not really diligently seeking. And yet they call themselves Christians. And I'm not here to tell you where that is cut off. I don't know that. I don't have the answer. But I know that Jesus, in the New Testament, I think it's in uh, Luke 13 maybe, where they came to Jesus and they said, Lord, are there few that be saved? Jesus said at that point, he said, he said, many will seek to find the way, but few will find it. Something to that effect. And he said, strive ye to enter in. Because many are going to try and find it, and few will find it. Now that word strive, I get a picture of the same word, uh, diligent, I don't know how it is in the Greek. But in, in the Greek for strive, the word has the idea to struggle. Struggle, I believe. And uh, so it, it, it means we're serious about the Christian life. The next category of people I'd like to talk about are the Christians who are striving. The Christians who are serious about the uh, Christian life. Those who are like Jesus said in John 10, he said, I am come that they may have life and finish the verse for me. That they may have it more abundantly. Is that the desire to, of yours tonight? That you live in that abundance of the Christian life? Or are you content to somehow barely, well, I don't know how to term that, but somehow just be a mediocre Christian and just somehow, oh, as long as I can make it to heaven, I'm okay, that's all I care about. You know what? God is not pleased with that. God wants to give you the abundance of the Christian life. He wants you to enjoy the abundance of the Christian life. Jesus said, I am come that you might have life. You may have it more abundantly. And I see a picture of richness there, that, those sheep that have abundant grass. Recently, Aid and I were out, uh, we had gone to Arizona for a few weeks, or a couple weeks, and uh, we went past or through a lot of desert country. And those of you who have gone through desert country, you know what it looks like. There's cactus out there, and it looks dry, and you see cattle here and there, and you, you wonder, how are these cattle picking a living off of this desert country? And that's a little bit the way it is. Some people treat the Christian life a little bit like that. Oh, I'm just content as long as I can keep my nose above water. That's all I care. No. God wants us to live in this bountiful, lush, Midwest grass and, and have all that um, spiritual experience. Tonight we're going to look at some types the Old Testament, you can turn your Bibles to, uh, yeah, let's go to Exodus. Exodus. What we're going to draw from, the Old Testament is so rich in, in types and shadows, and I love to look at that. I like to look at the types in the Old Testament, how they speak to us in the New Testament, in my period of time, your period of time. How do... How do those Old Testament happenings, how do they minister to us? And so we want to look at that. The title of my message is From Egypt to Canaan. As a story of God's people, the church, the Old Testament church, because of their forefather Abraham, of his obedience and his faith, God said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply you. 
and you're going to live in this land, and I'm going to give that land of Canaan to you. And of course, there's many things that happened in Joseph. We could go back to Joseph, but the children of Israel found themselves many years later after Abraham. They found themselves servants in the land of Egypt, not only servants, slaves, slaves. And the Bible says they served with rigor. Let's look at Exodus 1, get a picture of that. Exodus 1, I'm going to start reading with verse 8. So I'd like for you to, to imagine the children of Israel as us today. Now all of us, if we're saved people, we were in the land of Egypt before we were saved, okay? That is the picture of the unsaved person. That is a person who is still in bondage. Now God calls us out of that. And he's told those children of Israel, he said, he said to Moses, I think it was, he said, I have something better for you. I have a land here that's flowing with milk and honey. I have a land of abundance. I'm going to take you out of this land of bondage. And I'm going to take you to the land of, that flows with milk and honey. And so they were on a journey. In between that, they were on a journey. And that is what we call the wilderness experience. We're going to talk about that. But first, let's talk about the land of their, their Egypt experience. When they were slaves, the slavery, the Egypt slavery typifies being enslaved to Satan, to the world, to sin before conversion. Let's look at what they put up with in Exodus 1 verses, uh, let's begin with verse 8. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us and so get them up out of the land. What he was saying, what the Pharaoh was saying here, now this is Joseph was dead, now there's another Pharaoh had risen up. And he was, he was saying, these slaves that are here, these people that are here, uh, I'm not sure if they were slaves yet at that point, but he said, let's do something. These people are more and mightier than we and if we're not careful, they're going to overtake us. And so he came up with a plan. He says, come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they all join also unto our enemies and fight against us and so get them up out of the land. Therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens and they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. Now, I want to look at that word rigor. That word rigor, how many of you ever worked for a boss? That, don't raise your hand. He made you serve with rigor. Okay, probably not as bad as what this was. The Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. It means severity, cruelty. And if you can picture what this must have been, the children of Israel, those men working from morning to evening, making brick, and going home dead tired in the evening, and the next day it's the same thing over and over. And if they don't perform, probably feeling the lash of the whip. They made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and brick and all manner of service in the field. All the service wherein they made, a, made them serve was with rigor. Can you imagine? Hope, where's hope? Uh, 
Maybe all hope was gone, or most hope might have been gone for some of them. Here we are, we're under the taskmaster, we're serving. Now, that's not the worst. I want to take you to verse 22. And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born ye shall cast into the river, and every daughter ye shall save alive. I want to ask you tonight, and I want to raise a hands. How many of you parents in here ever had a son? You had a son. Many of you, mothers, how would you feel? You carry that child for nine months. And at the end of the nine months, the fulfillment, the child is born, the son is born. And instead of joy, there is sorrow. Because that son has to be thrown into the Nile River. Tear your heart out. Worse than the cruelty of the, of the uh, work and the labor. That's what those people were under. I want you to get a picture of the terrible conditions that these people were under. So look at Egypt as a type of the world. Pharaoh is a type of Satan, symbolic of Satan, a hard, cruel taskmaster. I want you to look at God's plan for the deliverance in Exodus 3. Let's look at Exodus 3, verses 7 to 10. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land, a large a land flowing with milk and honey under the place of the Canaanites and Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. Now therefore behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh. He's talking to Moses here. That thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. There's hope. We are here oppressed in Egypt. And that is a picture of a soul that is under the oppression of Satan. I don't know how many people here tonight may, may be in that situation. There may be someone tonight that is still there under the oppression of Satan. I want to tell you there's hope. And while sin may be fun, the outcome is not. And there is hope for uh, deliverance from that. And so Egypt is that type of the world. And there needed to be a deliverance of that. God says, I had that deliverance in place. I'm going to deliver you. I have a better place for you. I have a better plan for you. Second Corinthians 6, verses 17 and 18 says, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Notice the conditions for deliverance. He says, come out. And touch not. And that was basically what needed to be done there with the children of Israel. Come out of that land of Egypt. God said, I have a plan for you. Moses, you're going to take these people out of the land of, of Egypt. And we're going to be separate. They, they needed to be separate. Now, we want to look at the deliverance from bondage. The requirement was the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And I'm not necessarily going to turn to that. You know that story. And for the sake of time, 
But in Exodus 12, we read of the deliverance requirements. And of course, remember the, the plagues. Moses said, let my people go. Let them go out in the wilderness. Let them sacrifice to their God. And Pharaoh would, would not let them go. And then the plague would come. And then he would say, okay. And then another plague would come. And he wouldn't let him go. And another plague. And plague after plague. And finally, the Bible says, and I don't understand the mind of God totally, but the Bible says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Does God harden hearts? Well, his ways are above our ways. His, uh, his mind is above our mind. But God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He wouldn't let them go until, until the last plague. And we know what that was. That was when the death angel came and killed the first born son of a household. And it says also the firstborn of the animals. I think it was the firstborn of the males, of the animal males. But the firstborn, and that's when Pharaoh said, okay, you can go. But the requirement for the children of Israel took faith. If you think about it, okay, God says, you take this lamb, and of course, is a picture of Jesus Christ, the sacrificial lamb. We're going to be celebrating that now this coming week, this week. You take this lamb and you, 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 you kill the lamb and you eat that lamb and you save the blood and you put it on the door, the door frame, the upper and the side. You put that on the door frame and he says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And that still holds true in a spiritual sense. When the blood of Jesus Christ, when that has been applied to my heart, to your heart, then God says, I will pass over you. The death sentence is lifted, you're free, and I will pass over you. And so it was for the children of Israel, the death sentence, or the sentence, or the, uh, the bondage of Egypt, was lifted and God delivered them. Then we have the Red Sea experience, a type of salvation. I believe the Red Sea experience is a type of salvation. That blood on the doorpost of the, uh, on uh, their blood of the lamb on the doorpost, a type of salvation. The deliverance from Egypt, a type of salvation. The Red Sea experience, a type of salvation. And they came to the Red Sea, you know that story, and the Israelites, or the, the Egyptians came after them. Here was the, the Red Sea. And here come the Egyptian army. What would you have done? Moses. In essence, they're saying, we're toast. We don't, here, we, we are, here we are. We're in a pretty tough spot. And I think, if I remember right, they were complaining already. Why did you bring us out here to be killed by the Egyptians? Wouldn't it have been better to die back there? They began murmuring. That was one of the downfalls of the children of Israel in the wilderness. They complained, they murmured, and they missed. They didn't trust. Moses said, stand ye still and see the salvation of the Lord. So it is with us. When we come to that crossing, that Red Sea crossing, the deliverance from Egypt into the Christian life, into uh, the, the ownership of another master, of the Lord Jesus, we're delivered from Satan. Now, 
There's another message. In fact, I had contemplated about maybe preaching it here tonight, but I'm, I decided not to. That brings us to a subject. Do Christians sin? Do real Christians sin? Well, you can think about that. Anyhow, so we had the deliverance from bondage, and we had the, red, uh, the blood and the Red Sea experience, and now they are in the wilderness. They went through the Red Sea. God provided for them in a very wonderful way. We want to go to the wilderness experience. The wilderness experience I am likening to tonight. To those people, and I don't maybe some of maybe some of you are in this. Sometimes Christians, they are delivered from Satan. They are they become a Christian, and yet somehow they flounder. And they don't make progress spiritually. And somehow they cannot, they can't seem to move forward. They're just like an old car that's stuck in the mud. And they spin their wheels and they're just not making progress. They're in the wilderness. Do you ever experience that? It's not God's will for you. No, God wants to give you abundance. He wants to bless you abundantly. As Jesus said, I am come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I think those people can be miserable people. Oh, you know what? The world kind of looks alluring. We kind of look lustfully at the world and the things in the world. And, and, but I want to be a Christian. Oh, I don't want to go to hell. And yet the zeal is just not there. And they can't seem to make progress. And there's probably different contributing factors to that. The wilderness experience, 40 years of wandering. You think about those children of Israel, the church. They were the church, the Old Testament church. And they were out there in the wilderness just on our way to Canaan. We're on our way to Canaan. And they had hope. And yet many times their hope was dashed. And they went through a lot of trials and temptations and, and whatever. And of course it took a lot of food. And it took water. Because he had animals with him. There was probably about a million people. I don't know for sure how many there were. But there were a lot of people. And they get to the place where Moses, what are we going to do? We need water. And a God would miraculously furnish water for them. Supply them with water and food. We look at Exodus 16. We don't need to turn to that. They needed, they needed food. And so God, in a very miraculous way, sent them what? What was it? Young men up here, what did God send them for food? Manna. What does the word manna mean? What is it? That's right. They came out one morning. Wow, here's these little things, these little... Uh, the Bible compares it like with a hoarfrost, I think. And here are these little, whatever they are, wafers, whatever. And the Bible says... It was like, uh, oh, I have it written down here somewhere. It was sweet, like uh, wafers with honey or something like that. God sustained them through the manna. What a wonderful way that God sustained them. And uh, they went out there and, oh, they picked up this manna and it was so wonderful. And, of course, God said, don't pick up any on the Sabbath day, on the Sabbath day, but you can pick up double for, on, the, on the sixth day. And, uh, but some of them, they didn't listen. It's just like people today. I find these people of Israel, 
these children of Israel, these Hebrew people, much the same as people today. And uh, some of them didn't listen. God had given specific instructions. Don't pick up uh, more than you need in a day except for the sixth day. And for for the Sabbath, you can pick up double on the sixth day. And some of them didn't listen. And the bread got molded. The the manna got uh, spoiled. And the Bible says it stank. And uh, so they didn't listen. They had to learn. Isn't that the way it is with us? Sometimes we make mistakes. We learn from mistakes. The manna. What does the manna stand for? Jesus said in John chapter 6, I believe it was, he said, I am that bread of life. He was speaking to the religious leaders of the day. And they knew the story well. They knew the story how the forefathers had been sustained by manna. And Jesus said, now, I am that manna. I am your bread that sustains us. Now, I want to tell you, without the manna, the spiritual manna, I cannot live spiritually. You cannot live spiritually. It is our spiritual life must be nourished by the manna, by the bread of life, by Jesus Christ and by the word. And if we don't feed on that, I'll just tell you my experience. Many of you knew, some of you knew my father. My father was uh, was not perfect by any means. And I learned, but I learned a lot of things from my dad, probably the most influential people in my life, which he well should be as a dad. But he taught me to read the Bible. As a young person, he taught me to read the Bible. And uh, it is a habit I have held for many, many years, even though as a young person, I was often, I was sometimes not what I should have been. But this thing of reading the Bible was stamped upon my mind. I, it is necessary, I need to read the Bible. Now, I want to say this, also I want to clarify this. You can read the Bible all you want to, and unless you apply it to your heart, it's not going to do you any good spiritually. It must take application. We must apply it to our heart. We can read it and have a head knowledge, but unless we read it and accept it and apply it to our lives by faith, it will not benefit us. So the manna is is, uh, symbolic of the word of God. It is sweet. It blesses our lives. Forty years they ate that manna. And you know what? They finally came to the place where they said, we're tired of this bread. We're tired of this manna. We want something better. How does God's word satisfy you? Do we have to run to some real exciting events and some real exciting things to finally satisfy us spiritually? Or is the Bible sufficient? The Bible says they started murmuring, we're tired of this. And upon that, we read it in Numbers, God sent snakes, the fiery serpents. You know what? God is not pleased when we murmur. God is not pleased when we're not, when we're not thankful. We always need to be thankful. And I come, you know, I don't want you to think I'm trying to say I'm the perfect person. No, not by any means. I have growing to do. But if you come to your 
devotional life with a ho-hum thing. You think, oh, well, I guess I'll read a few verses before I go to work and say a few words of prayer before I go to work. And listen, you're going to be in the wilderness. God doesn't want you there. When I think of God's word, his eternal word, the Bible, Peter, we read about this Bible, this word of God being eternal. It is eternal. That's not only in this life, but it is eternal. And prayer to the eternal father. We are in an awesome place. We come to God in the privacy of our chamber, the privacy of our room. And it's just God and me. It is wonderful manna. That is eternal. And I'm speaking to an eternal God. We have an awesome, awesome privilege to be there in the presence of an eternal God, reading from the eternal word, the manna that not only feeds us for 40 years, but that feeds us for eternity, or the, for this life, and prepares us for the next. How is your Bible reading? Is it meaningful? Young people, is your Bible reading meaningful? Older people, is your Bible reading meaningful? I would challenge you with this. If you find your Bible reading, your personal time with God, and if you, I think somebody this morning at Bethel said, if you depend on Sunday morning for your spiritual nourishment, if that's all you depend on, you're not going to make it. I tell you what, there's going to be malnutrition if I just depend on Sunday morning going to church, and I, okay, I'll listen to what the preacher has to say, and I'll go home, and I'll try to keep a, you know, I, I like to eat. I wouldn't think of, I wouldn't think of, well, okay, I guess I'll eat breakfast this morning, and I'll, in another week I'll eat breakfast again. I won't eat anything. No, we eat daily, don't we? Unless we're fasting. Those of you who fast, very good thing to do. But we need God's word daily. Thy word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my pathway. It is a means by which we find our way spiritually, and that by the Holy Spirit and by the word, we find our way spiritually through this journey of life. This journey that took them 40 years, and many of them didn't make it. You look at scripture, you find the scripture, I think, if I may be mistaken, but I believe the only old people that got into the land of Canaan then, 40 years later, were Josh and Caleb. Is that right? Is that correct? I think so. Uh, because of their faithfulness. They were the ones that had hope. They were the ones that said, yes, we can take this land. And the other 12, 10 spies says, no, it's too, the giants are too big and so forth. We can't take it. God wasn't pleased with that. There are going to be giants in your life. There, some of you have experienced those giants and young people. I want to tell you, you live long enough, you're going to face some hard things in life, some giants in life. God is sufficient in those times. But it was because of unbelief that they could not make it into the promised land. They died out in the wilderness. They died out in their wanderings. Those 40 years, it would have had to take 40 years to get into, into the land of Canaan. It probably should have only taken a few months. But because of unbelief, they wandered around and they murmured, and they complained, and they looked back on Egypt. Oh, I wish we were back there. That's another trait of a person 
that ha is in the wilderness experience and somehow, you know, oh, we're Christian, but boy, I really wish we could do the things we did back then. I, again, I want to say, I don't know where the line is where a person like that remains a Christian. But the Bible says, and this is not from me, this is what the word of God says, so you can't argue with me on this. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world, and it's going to pass away. And the Bible says if we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. Pretty serious. Pretty, pretty self-defining. Not hard to understand. So tonight, if you're a person that you're in the wilderness and you kind of you know, your enthusiasm for Jesus Christ, your enthusiasm for heaven, and all those things, the things of God, they're just pretty dim. And you're looking back at the things of the world. Oh, I wish I could. I know I can. I, I'm a person. I, I know I can't, but I really would like to be a partaker of the things of the world. I'm not sure how long you can remain a Christian that way. I don't know where that line is. But the Bible says, don't love the world. And if you do, you can't be one of the fathers. The fiery serpents, that was a part of the wilderness experience because they, they disobeyed. They were, they were murmuring, actually. They murmured against the very thing that God gave them to sustain them. And that was the manna. That wonderful manna that God gave them. Yes, after a while they got tired of it. It became commonplace and they were unthankful. But it was the very thing that sustained them spiritually or uh, physically. And God's word is the very thing that's going to sustain, sustain us spiritually. We need to feed on it. There was unbelief. There were the, the serpents that came. And it was a terrible thing. I forget how many thousand people. I think it was 23,000. I think we read it in 1 Corinthians. 23,000 people maybe at that point. Or was that for another sin that they did? But there were a lot of people that died. And here they said, Moses, we got to have help. Our people are dying. The people were dying. Uncle was dying over here. Grandmother's dying over here, whatever, whoever it was. And they, the people were dropping, dying. We need a, we need a solution here. And God told, Ab told Moses, he said, go take that piece of brass and hammer it out into a snake. Why a snake? This is the very thing that they were dying from, the snake bite. But God said, you go and make an image of a snake, put it up on a pole. You know what? That wonderful chapter of John 3, when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and, and, and didn't understand the plan of salvation, Jesus said, you must be born again. He said, like as Moses, Nicodemus knew that story. He was one of the masters of Israel. And Nicodemus knew the story of the of the. Of the uh, fiery serpents and the brazen serpent and how that had saved the people as they looked at that brazen serpent on the pole by faith and they looked at that and they were healed the plague was stayed Jesus said to Nicodemus he said as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so must the son of man be lifted up that whosoever believeth on him should not perish should have everlasting life and so the serpent was the very image of the thing that destroyed them. Jesus, the very image. He was a man. Sin destroyed us. 
and Jesus came to save us. So as we look at Jesus, a man on the cross, he came to save me from my sin. Give me eternal life. It's a very beautiful picture there. Well, I think we need to go to the last point here. Um, well, before I do, I want to I wanna look at, uh, you don't need to turn to that, but I'm just going to reference this. Those Old Testament, that Old Testament church, as I look at them, very, very carnal. They were out in the wilderness there. And yet God said, I'm going to bless these people, this people, because Abraham, you were faithful. And yet they were very carnal. They looked back at Egypt. They looked back at the place they'd come from. And they looked back and said, you know what? Back there we had enough to eat. And they forgot some of the bad things that happened. They kind of seemed to forget that they lost their sons and they had to work under with rigor. They kind of seemed that that kind of seemed to fade and they looked at the things they okay, we had enough to eat. We had the leeks and the garlics and all that stuff. Out here in the wilderness, where's our food going to come from? And I think of a scripture in 2 Peter. It's almost too gross to say, but it isn't too gross because the Bible speaks about it. It says, those people that were once enlightened and they've turned their backs on God. He likens them as a sow and a dog. A sow that has been washed clean. What do, how many of you ever had hogs? They are aggravating things, aren't they? We had hogs years ago and they just try out the Christian life. <laughs> Anyhow. What does a sow do? They love to be dirty, don't they? You know, you could take a sow, you could wash her nice and clean. And what does she do? She goes and wallows in the mud pile. That's what she likes to do. God says, a person that has been washed clean, and they turn back, go back in that life of sin, is like that sow. God hates it. And in other words, here's the thing that's really, I mean, it's gross. It's the dog. He's eating something. He vomits it up. And the worst thing is he goes back and eats that. Terrible thing. Can you get a picture of what God, of how, how it looks to God? When a person has been delivered from sin, he has been freed from the bondage of sin, and he goes back into that. Well, let's move on to the third point, Canaan. The promised land. This is the land that's flowing with milk and honey. This is the land that I want to take you, God said to the children of Israel, to Moses. I want to take these people to this promised land. I'd like to liken this. And, you know, there may be different applications here. If you, if you apply this as meaning heaven, that's okay. That's okay. It might, it maybe it means that too. Maybe we can apply it that way. What I'd like to apply it tonight is a land of... Victory, a place of victory and uh, plenty and Christian fulfillment, spiritual fulfillment, the land of Canaan. The reason I think that it really fits this is because there were still giant, there were still uh, enemies there. Uh, maybe the Hittites the, and Jebusites and all these. God said, drive these enemies out. The Christian life is filled with battle and fightings. Do you find it that way? I find it that way. Maybe you find it that, well, it's all smooth sailing. I doubt it. If you're a Christian today and you're 
you're ser- serious about serving God, I doubt whether you find that the Christian life is easy. Oh, it's all smooth sailing. Now I'm in the land of Canaan. Those people, God said, God said, you are to fight these people. This is the enemy. And to me, it's symbolic of the enemy, even in the Christian life as he tries to invade my life. I find that I must daily take up the cross and follow Christ. It is a battle, an ongoing battle. But some blessed day, that battle is going to be over. And I will be in the true land of Canaan, and so will you if we're victorious. So there are battles to be fought, and yet God does. As we apply ourselves, as we're committed to him, he gives us plenty, he blesses us, and he leads us beside the still waters. He takes us into the lush pastures. This is the land of Canaan for the Christian, a land of milk and honey, the land of abundance. I am come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. It's a picture of a, of a rich spiritual life. Yes, there are battles and there are victories. Sometimes we don't make the battle, do we? Do real Christians sin? John, in First John, he says, and he's speaking to Christian people. Maybe I can give you some hope and courage here. If you think, oh, you know what? I blew it there. I missed it. I lost that battle. John says, my little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. How many of you have ever been sitting in a courtroom in a court of law and there's a condemned, there's a man, he's up there for murder or some crime. And his advocate is pleading his case for him. Man may be guilty, but his advocate. And so Jesus Christ is our advocate. We are guilty, we stand guilty without Jesus Christ. But the Bible says, he is our advocate. My little children, these things I write unto you, that you don't sin. But if any man miss the mark, if any man makes a mistake, if any man falters, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is speaking to Christian people here. Do real Christians sin? Well, the Bible says that the Christian doesn't sin. You know what that means? He does not live in sin. He is not dominated by sin. However, the Bible does also recognize that sometimes we make mistakes. And that is not living in sin. So there's a difference there. Well, that's a message in itself. So there needed to be a positive faith uh, those people, those children of Israel now being led by Joshua, man I have admired greatly, a man I wished I could be more like, a man of courage. And when the time came close that they were going to cross into Canaan land, cross that Jordan River that divided them from the land of the promise, Joshua said, he was a man of vision. He said, get ready. He said, because in three days we're going to cross. He was a man that I believe set goals and he had a vision. He had vision for the people. And he said, in three days, we're going to cross. He sent people out. He sent messengers out. People, get ready. In three days, we're going to cross. And it was because of this man, Joshua, his faith, his tremendous faith, 
and, and courage that they were able to reach that promised land. Go in and, and experience abundance of that land in a physical way. Today I want to liken that. The land of Canaan, the land of milk and honey, as a land, the, the state of being of the Christian who is committed to Jesus Christ. He is daily taking up his cross and following Jesus Christ. He is winning the victory. He is winning the battles that Jesus Christ is the captain of his salvation. And maybe sometimes he falters, but he comes back through the advocate of Jesus Christ who is righteous and he pleads our case. But he's committed and he's serious about serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And he experiences the richness of that life. Tonight, I'm not sure where you put yourself. I don't have to know that. But probably you can pretty much de- uh, uh, diagnose where you are at. Are you living still under bondage in Egypt? Maybe you're not even a Christian yet. Or maybe you have become a Christian and somehow the Christian life is ho-hum, hum-drum. And you just are bored. And the word of God is dry. And like the children of Israel, we want something more. We're tired of this bread. I want to tell you what. If you're living in the land of Canaan, you're living in that land, that, in that place where Jesus said, I am come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. That speaks of plenty. The word of God is going, to, is going to be precious to you. And it becomes precious as we see ourselves, we look at it, and we use it as our bread of life, knowing we must live by this if we're going to make it. Not only trying to exist, not only trying to barely keep our nose by water, but living in God's will and enjoying the Christian life not without sorrow, not without some, some tests and trials. No, those tests and trials are plenty. But living in the joy of the Lord. The psalmist says, and I often think about this in the morning, and I pray, Lord, I want to be like that. This is the day that the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. God says to us, like he did to, the, to Moses, I have something better. I have something better. I want you to live in that land of plenty, in the land of Canaan. Are you living in that land of Canaan? In the land of plenty, in the, in the plenteous that Jesus Christ has given to us, has provided for us, it is there for us. We don't need to be miserable Christians. I, Christians, I'm not sure how long you can be a miserable Christian. Well, you don't need to be a miserable Christian who's wandering around the wilderness for 40 years, floundering and wandering. Oh, you just... Just, just enduring the Christian life, God has something better for you. He says, I am come. You may have life. You may have it more abundantly. God bless you. May he help us to live in that life of plenty. That's what God wants for us.